Revelation chapter 2 is where we are. We are picking up our verse-by-verse study here. We're going to be dealing with the church of Thyatira today. Um, One of the big things that I want to communicate is just uh, encourage. I hope and I desire and I encourage you to be spending quality time with the Lord as we sit in these words. I I have heard more from God than I have ever in my life in the last 20 years in, in regards to these passages over the last couple of months. Just sitting with him, listening, going back to the passages uh, that give the description and the imagery. So even last week, sitting in the story of Balaam and all that the Lord had to communicate there. This morning, we're going to sit in Jezebel's story. Um, My heart for you is always to spend just really good time with God. Sometimes that's five minutes. Sometimes it's a couple of hours. But just really taking that time to be curious, to turn in, to wonder, what does this mean? What is it saying? Going back to the imagery. So as we sit in this morning's text, again, if you don't understand Jezebel, And the context of that story through multiple chapters of the Old Testament, you're really not going to understand what Jesus is communicating to the church. And again, we have this exhortation at the end of every one of these letters that he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to have an ear that hears, you need to read. You need to ask questions. Even sitting in that question uh, a few minutes ago, God, who are you? Who are you that you created the heavens and the earth? Who are you that you became a human being just like us? Who are you that your sacrifice and your death on that cross was payment for my sins and payment for your sins? Who are you? Who are you that you can die and take your life back and live again? Who are you that in that body, in that resurrected body, he ascended to heaven? And again, these aren't, these aren't, this isn't just religious mythology. These are historical facts. Who are you? Who are you that you love me? Who are you that you care about me? Who are you that you provide for me? Who are you that you speak to me? Who are you? Who am I? Why did you give me life? Why do I exist? What am I supposed to do with my life? Am I just supposed to sit here with my eyes closed and ears plugged and ignoring all of the world until you come back? What What do you want me to do, Lord? Here I am. As we talk about disciples, being a follower of him, being Jesus people, this is what I've kept the title of all of these messages. Jesus is speaking to his people. They're in specific communities. So as we look at this area of western Turkey, we looked at Ephesus and then up the coast to Smyrna and then up the coast to Pergamos. And then now as you turn inland to Thyatira that we're sitting in, Thyatira is a nothing town. There's no, there's no real um, 
influence that we have, in re, or information about the influence that the church had in that community. Small church, inconsequential town, wasn't, wasn't the big, robust town such as that uh, Ephesus and Smyrna was at that time in history. But he still chose to communicate and to reveal himself to that church. He chose to correct it. So in every single one of these corrections, well, I guess in the, in the reminder of outline is Jesus is speaking to each one of these congregations. It's really a variety of congregations in each one of these communities. He's revealing something about himself, his identity, about who he is. And that's one of the, that's one of the major things that you want to sit in and listen to. Who are you, Lord? As you, this is, these are the words that you're using to reveal yourself to us. What does that mean? Very specific context this morning. As he comes to them, he has words for them, words of praise and words of rebuke, and we need to sit in those words. Are you speaking to me at all? Are you speaking to our culture at all through these words right now? And as I sit in this, absolutely. Every single one of them is applicable. And you sit in his promises and his judgment. If you don't turn, if you don't listen to his words, there is a guaranteed judgment coming from him. If you listen, if you repent, if you turn, if you remember, if you hold on to him, there is this promised reward, this promised victory in him. It's the same formula, different specific circumstances. So let's look at Thyatira. It says to the angel, so this is in verse, I can't read that little print. What are we starting, 18? Sure, I believe that's an 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, literally, behold, see, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we go back and just everything, it's always in context. You always want to continue to pay attention to what has already been said, what's going to be said afterwards to keep the communication in context. But to the Ephesians, he brought up these, this group of people identified as the Nicolaitans and specifically their deeds, their works. To the church in Pergamos, he brought up those who were teaching the doctrine of Balaam. And here in Thyatira, there's a woman in the community that he is calling Jezebel, and we're going to sit in her story. But she's teaching and seducing. So when you look at Jesus's words, he gives us a lot of communication and warning about false doctrine, false teaching, false Christ, false pastors, just false human beings that are coming in with their flesh and their own ways. And you can sit with Jesus, especially like something like Matthew 23, where he is specifically addressing the religious leaders of his culture and the falsehoods that they were teaching. As you sit in the letters, whether it's Paul or Peter or James or John or Jude, every single one of them repetitiously warns us about false teachers. And as Jesus is coming to the congregations at this time in history, which it's just it's right before the turn of that first century, over and over again, he's bringing up this reality that there's false teachings, false doctrines within the congregations. And within each one of these congregations, the major issue is that they're allowing it to occur. Even when there's many in the churches that they, they recognize the falsehood, but they're not doing anything to confront the falsehood. And we see that a lot in our culture. So you can sit through in church history um, all throughout the ages, and you can sit in our modern culture right now. The, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, where it's believed that, you know, the, you have this group of, like, this priestly class, so to say, that is ruling over the people, you know, keeping, keeping believers in subject to their authority, to their teaching, whether it's the doctrine of Balaam and Jezebel, which are linked, and same with the Nicolaitans, where... There's this, there's this undercurrent of um, telling people to continue to walk in their flesh, to continue not to turn away from sexual immorality, which that is often imagery for violating your relationship with God, the adultery that's being communicated about. Again, the, the imagery all over the Old Testament, it's you're violating your covenant relationship with God. The meat sacrifice to idols, it's, it's, the imagery is speaking about taking on all of the other religions and their practices uh, and applying them towards your relationship with God. And you can, sit in this, you can sit in all of this today. Our culture is doing the exact same thing. Major denominations have had splits over history. The Methodist Church is in the midst of one of those splits right now in regards to homosexuality in the church. 
The Presbyterian church has already gone through it. The Episcopalian congregations have already gone through it. The Methodist congregations are going through it right now where you have the teachings of the culture having influence within the body of Christ and the body of Christ is to be submitted to its singular authority, Jesus himself. And saying and asking these questions just like Satan does. Well, what about this? And well, what about that? And not sitting in his truth, even when it's hard to follow and even when it's hard to communicate to those who are in rebellion. So this gets into this, this watch how our culture influences, not just our culture, but how... Uh, the cultures of the world influence the body of Christ in which they find themselves all throughout history. And the, the church takes on all different kinds of flavors. And it's definitely taken on a variety of flavors as we sit in our melting pot of a culture here in America. But look at the words that Jesus uses when he comes to this church in Thyatira. This church that is allowing false doctrine. And he comes in with the proclamation of his deity. Thus says, these things says, the son of God. And again, we sit in the revelation of who our God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. And this title, the Son of God, is singular and specific to his life and all of his eternity. He is declaring himself to be God, just like to, um, you know, to the church in Smyrna. He says, these things says the first and the last. Right To the church of Pergamos, it's he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The one who is the first and the last, he's the beginning and the end. He has always existed. He is the very word of God. And now to the church of Thyatira, this is what the son of God is saying. And it ought to stop us in our tracks. Because we use these titles for him often. But to really sit in and what, is that, what does that declare to you about his character? We know from New Testament teaching that you and I are children of God only through adoption, not by nature. We're children of the devil. We're children of the world. We're children of wrath. We're children of disobedience outside of Christ. These are the titles that are given to humanity outside of Jesus. And when you come to him in faith of, I believe who you are. I believe who Jesus Christ is. I'll trust you. I'll yield to you. I'll turn away from me and die to myself, be separated from myself every single day as I follow you. I can't do that. God, help me. You're the son of God, and I'm called a child of God based upon your identity as the son of God. He has eyes that are like a flame of fire. We talked about this in that initial description in chapter 1 that this is the idea that he is all-knowing, fire consumes, fire refines, fire reveals. He is the all-knowing one. His feet that are like fine brass, he is the righteous judge. And this is one of the ideas that I've been sitting in um, a lot, is why the words that Jesus chooses to speak to each one of these churches, they're specific, they're not random. 
So why does he use these words specifically? I know, I have knowledge of, I'm aware of your works, your love, and that's agape, your sacrificial love, your service, which is the idea of being a deacon. That's the, that word that we get from, how we serve one another, how we serve him. I know your faith. I know your patience. And he comes back to their works again. And your works, the last, the, the works that you're doing right now, they're more than they were at the first. And this idea of works says later on, verse 23, I will give to each one of you according to your works. And then in verse 26, he says, he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, I will give power over the nations. This whole, this whole idea of faith and works. When we talk about who God is, God is indivisible. When we talk about God as Father and God as Son and God as Holy Spirit, we try and compartmentalize everything so we can kind of get a handle on who God is, his nature, his character. We want to talk as, about his wrath as one subject matter and his love as another subject matter, his provision as another. God is always all of himself all the time. You can't divide God. You can't break him down into pieces. And it's the same thing with faith and works. You cannot divide faith and works. We try to. So in Ephesians 2, and everybody should have this passage memorized and underlined, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it's we are saved by grace. It is, it is the gift of God. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's something that he has granted to us according to his wonderful grace, his wonderful love, and all that that proclaims. We're saved by grace. And then through faith, there's a responsibility on my part, there's a responsibility on your part to respond to God in, I believe in who you say you are. I trust you. I will turn away from all others and I will follow you. Help me. That's faith. And he tells us that even, even faith itself, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. You did not seek God first. He sought you. He created you. He knows your beginning from your end. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he has orchestrated the events of your life to bring you to him. He has tested you. He has refined you. He has challenged you. He has blessed you. He does things to cause you to pay attention to him. And he gives you space to repent like he gave Jezebel space to repent. Many of us choose to because God is patient with us and there's not immediate consequences to our rebellion to him. We use that as an excuse to keep doing what we want to do because there was no negative consequence to our rebellion. And he's patient with us. He gives us time. He gives us faith. With that faith, he tells us that our salvation, it is not by a work. It's not by your own righteousness. It's not by your own definitions. 
It's not by your own actions and activities. There's no work that you can do that will save yourself. And if you want to try, go ahead and die and bring yourself back to life. That would be the test. And nobody has ever done it before other than Jesus. And anybody else who has ever been resurrected from the dead momentarily is through the power of Jesus and he alone because he is eternal life. He's the creator. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's not of ourselves. So that what? So that nobody can stand before God and boast in pride and in arrogance and say, aren't I a wonderful human? But as you travel on in that passage in Ephesians, you got to sit in chapter, or in verse 10 of chapter 2. He tells us that he created us for good works. And the good works that he has created us to do, that he has planned for our lives, all we simply do is walk in those things. He's already prepared them beforehand. He has your life planned. He has a purpose for you. It doesn't mean that you're just this robot and you go through the motions, but he invites you into a relationship with him continually. And these are the works that Jesus is talking about. So every single one of these congregations, he comes to them and says, I know what you're doing. I know the works that I've created for you. I know how you're following me. I know how you're trusting in me. I know how you're responding in service. For those of you who are watching online this morning, the only reason you're able to watch online is because Chris kicked that computer really hard and got it to work this morning. That's an act of service that's going on behind the scenes. Sit in the worship team or just everything that it takes for us to do what we call church this morning. There's all these incredible acts of love and service going on behind the scenes. When's the last time any of you walked up to Stacy and thanked her for cleaning this building and cleaning up after your mess every single week? Act of service. It's awesome, her love. And we watch this in a variety of ways, not just in this building, outside of this building, as we interact in each other's lives. And Jesus says, I know it. I know your patience. He also says, I know your faith. But that, that idea of your faith, earlier in, in chapter 2, he calls it my faith. There's a lot of, Jesus is the possessor of all things. He talks about my name my servants, my works, my faith, my father, my God. He knows it all. And this idea of faith and works, James is really clear that we, uh, faith without works is dead. And we could reverse that at the same time and say works without faith is dead. It's, they, are, they are subject matters that are indivisible. We had a great discussion about this on Wednesday night as we're talking about discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Luke chapter 5, is a, it's a fascinating passage. But when Peter is convicted by the revelation of who Jesus is, he falls down on his face before Jesus and he says, Depart from me because I'm a sinner. He was confronted with Jesus' holiness, his provision, his power. He was confronted with his own rejection, and he was confronted with his own uh, 
you know, kind of like resident fine, Lord, because you tell me I'll do it, attitude. And then Jesus' response to that is when you, when you fall down in fear before him, he looks at each one of us and he tells us not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've made you. And I will make your life to be something. For the disciples, it was that promise. I will make you to be something you're not. I will make you to be a fisher of men. Taking their occupation and applying it to who he is and who they were to be as his followers, as his learners. So when we press into this relationship with Jesus, it's, it is, it's both. I believe. I trust And out of that position is I work. And Lord, you know my works. And I don't need to come up with a man's system in man's way. I'm not trying to work out my own own righteousness. However, I am trying to work out my own salvation in fear and trembling. Who are you, Lord? Who am I? We talked about last week of not having a compromising relationship where... um, We make excuses for our behaviors and for the culture. No, we press into who he is, who he has created us to be, and who he is calling us to be. And this gets into Jezebel. So in this community, there is this woman who he calls Jezebel. And whether that was her real name, probably not. But he's highlighting the character of the Old Testament. And the issue with the congregation is that they were allowing this woman. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Greek language, woman can also mean wife. So there's an idea that she might be the wife of the pastor. Uh, the wife of somebody influential in the community. And she is exerting strong influence in the church. She's calling herself a prophetess, even though she's not. She's teaching things that are false. She's seductive, seducing, which means that she's causing believers in this community to wander. The believers, Jesus identifies, you are my servants. What are his servants doing? They're being seduced to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. He says that he has given this woman time to repent of all of her sins, but specifically of the sexual immorality, but she didn't. He says that indeed, this is behold, see, he's going to cast her into a sick bed, so rather than the bed of immorality, he's casting into a bed of sickness, including those who are committing adultery with her into great tribulation, and again, the same thing, unless they repent of their deeds, their actions. And do you like hearing these words out of Jesus? I will kill her children with death. But the purpose of his actions is what? So that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And this is... As you sit in the story of Jezebel, you know, last week we got up to Numbers, the end of Numbers in the Bible, and kind of walked through that story, so I'm not going to rehash that. But when you get to the end of Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel is standing on the border of the Promised Land. Uh, 
Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, and jo- Joseph is Joseph. Joshua is now the leader. In the book of Joshua, you watch the nation of Israel go into the promised land and conquer and all that goes on there. When you fast forward into Judges, after Joshua has passed away, and again, at the end of Joshua, he makes this declaration that as for him and his house, he was going to serve Yahweh. He was going to serve the Lord. And it's a very important declaration because when you sit in Judges, there's this repetitious idea that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, in their own hearts, in their own minds, uh, living their life and worshiping God according to the dictates of their own heart, which is always wrong because our heart will always lead us to wander. But we watch this spiral of culture, not just a cycle of sin, but it's a spiral downward as they continue to degenerate. You sit in 1 Samuel, you have Hannah praying for a son. God gives to her Samuel. He's dedicated to the Lord, and he becomes this incredible prophet in the nation of Israel. And at that time, the nation of Israel rejects God as their king and says, give me a man to rule over me. And God says, fine, gives him Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul has some issues, and we are told that God tears the kingdom out of his hands. And he hands the kingdom to David. And David is a major hero of the Old Testament. God gives him very specific promises Even in the midst of his direct sin of adultery, of murder, when he is confronted with that sin, David repents. That I encourage you, anytime that you need to go have a conversation with God in regards to your sin, go sit with David and go sit with Jesus and your Father in the Holy, you know, through the power of the Spirit in confession through Psalm 51. My sin is always before me, Lord. You're convicting me. I know that this is wrong. I know that that was wrong. Wash me. Cleanse me. Create in me a clean heart. And then from that position of of being cleansed and being empowered by him, then I will go to the people and proclaim your gospel and proclaim who you are, not just to myself, but to everybody. Keep me clean, Lord. Incredible. Uh, heart of repentance in David. And God says, David was a man after my own heart. I bring him up because it's a wonderful teaching of grace. The woman that he committed adultery with was Bathsheba. The man who he had murdered was Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. The child that David and Bathsheba have, that first child dies. Another child that they have became the next king, Solomon. Incredible man, finished poorly. When you sit in uh, 2 Samuel 11, I believe, we have that testimony of how he turned away from the Lord and turned to idolatry in the end. And because of Solomon's idolatry, God said he was going to divide the kingdom. So he sends a specific prophet to a man named Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And then this, the prophet, he, uh, he takes this garment, tears it into 12 pieces, and 10 pieces God gave to Jeroboam, and the southern kingdoms remain as, a, as, as uh, 
The child of David was going to sit on that seat of that throne of Judah as promised, ultimately pointing to Christ through all of that. I bring all of this up in history to get us up to what's going on with Jezebel because Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, his sin... So when the Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes kingdom. This is when it's divided. So Rehoboam becomes the king of Judah. And then Jeroboam becomes the king of Israel, the northern ten tribes. And there's always conflict between the northern and southern kingdom after this point until they're all taken away. The northern tribes taken by Assyria. The southern tribes taken by Babylon because of their sin. But on the throne of Israel, there's not a single good king. And you watch Jeroboam being given this this kingship, and you watch him rebel, and his rebellion against God is because of fear. He doesn't want the people to go to Jerusalem and worship God in Jerusalem because he's afraid that the people will support Rehoboam as king rather than support himself. So he makes idols. And the idols that he makes, he makes two gold calves for the nation of Israel to worship in the north. And again, this is imagery. This is exactly what the Jews did when they came out of Egypt. They create this gold calf. They worship this gold calf. And you can go read that in Exodus 32 and the judgment that comes and the intercession and the healing and all of that. But here he sets up these idols. And the northern tribes continue to worship these idols. So that's a declaration that God gives to each one of these northern kings is that they continued in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Ahab's dad, Omri, ends up taking control. He becomes king, and then Ahab becomes king in in 1 Kings. And all of this is... Uh, So that's in 1 Kings 16 when Ahab becomes king. And Ahab's specific sin is that he, he even, it's this excess that he chose to marry this woman Jezebel, who's a princess. Her dad was the king of Sidon, so the kingdom of Tyre and Sidon in the north. And all of their pagan idolatry and all of their Baal worship, this is the woman that Ahab marries. And with Jezebel comes her support of idolatry. And the influence that she has in the culture is powerful. That's why he's talking about the church in Thyatira. They're allowing this woman to have this strong influence in the culture. Her influence, her, she is supporting hundreds of prophets of Baal. We're told that Ahab builds a temple to Baal in Samaria where he himself is worshiping and encouraging the Jews to turn away from God and to worship a a false idol, which God calls adultery. And this is where Elijah in 1 Kings 17 is sent to the culture. And the, the judgment that God gives for Elijah to give to the culture is a famine. It's not gonna rain. And one of the direct judgments is associated with the activity of Jezebel. She is giving food and supporting this, this false religious system in the culture. And God very clearly judges that system that she has in place and removes her ability to be able to provide for these false prophets. And it's for three years that it doesn't rain. And you sit in, all, in the midst of that section, you have Elijah 
coming to the people and challenging the prophets of Baal. They go up on top of Mount Carmel, this famous scene where it's choose, you choose today. Is Jesus God, yes or no? And in this scene, it's you choose. Is Yahweh the Lord, is he God or is Baal God? And he goes through this whole scene where God reveals himself, manifests himself in a way so that everybody would know that the Lord is God. And in that scene, you watch God reveals himself and then all the false prophets are executed. It's that same thing. God is giving Jezebel and all these others the space to repent. He's given a judgment. He's bringing hardships so that they will turn. He manifests himself so that the culture would know that he is God. And he's doing the exact same thing in Thyatira, and he does the exact same thing today. What he does in your life is so that you will turn into him and that you will know that he is and that you will know that he knows your mind and that he knows your heart. He knows your works. And the Spirit is constantly there with you every day, encouraging you and rebuking you. Are you listening? Are you remembering? Are you repenting? This is the process of discipleship. Well, Jezebel was really angry at that. She doesn't repent, so she threatens to kill Elijah. Elijah runs. You keep fast-forwarding through the scenes. We don't have time to cover it all this morning. But after Elijah is taken up into heaven, his servant Elisha becomes the prophet for the nation. And then you sit in 2 Kings of all these miracles that are going on. Elisha ends up being commanded and he sends another prophet to go anoint this man Jehu as the king of Israel in replacement after Ahab dies and, and, and all that's going on there. So Jehu receives this anointing as the king of Israel. And in this story, you watch him with passion and he tries to promote himself with the zeal of God, go and execute God's judgment upon all the children of Ahab. So he kills 70, the 70 sons of Ahab, Jehu kills. So this again, when Jesus says, I am going to kill her children, you go sit in the Old Testament that gives you the imagery, their offspring between Ahab and Jezebel and all of Ahab's other wives and the, what they are producing in the culture, God very clearly cuts off. And Jehu is a wicked man himself. He takes God's judgment and goes above and beyond. He even kills, says, 42 of the brothers of the king of Judah. He ends up, he's the one that enters into Samaria at that time when Jezebel comes out and all of her makeup and he says, who is with me? And they throw Jezebel down in, in a fulfillment of the prophecy that uh, when she is cast down off this wall, she dies. They leave her body there. They go inside and have a meal. And when they come back outside, there's, there's nothing left of her body other than her head, her hands and her feet. Because God said that her, her body would be refuse, it would be dung upon the land. Again, this very powerful imagery and judgment against an individual who is influencing God's kids away from God into adultery, into immorality, into false teaching, and here Jesus is coming in all of that imagery. 
Again, I, it, it, there's, there's a lot to glean from those passages. Their children, their daughter was, became queen of Judah because there was an intermarrying between uh, the king of Judah and a child of Ahab and Jezebel. Her name is Athaliah. And that woman, killed, when her son died, she kills all of her grandsons so that she can be king, except one of the daughters, one of the wives, preserves one boy. And you watch that boy become king at seven and all the reforms, all the doing away with the false teaching and redirecting the culture to the true God at that time. All of that imagery is what Jesus is communicating to this church. I love you. Do you love me? Re remember, repent. Come back to your first love. Loving me comes with its trials. It comes with its sufferings. It comes with its rejection from the world. It comes with unpopular decisions, do you, er, uh, declarations. Do you know that if you say that there are only two genders in our culture, that you're a bigot and that you're hateful and that you are evil to say that there is only male and female? That's what our culture tells us. And in many churches, so again, when we say church, this isn't a building, this isn't a denomination, this isn't an organization. We are saying that we are Jesus's people. We are gathering together for his name only to worship him and to celebrate him, to pursue him, to be transformed by him, to be like him, because we can't wait for him to come because we know that he's coming. And we have all of these promises. But to say things, to repeat what Jesus says, in this world, you are going to be hated. And it's going to come with consequences and costs. As you watch congregations sit in different times, different seasons, even, even congregations in our culture, and we have to process through all of these things ourselves, it's very easy for them to, and for us to, hold on to teachings that are absolutely not of Christ. The doctrines of Balaam, the doctrines of Jezebel. And not only that, because we're so nice, because we're so trusting and we're so loving, it's very hard to confront somebody who's teaching something that's wrong. Like, I'm, I'm a sucker. I just, I automatically assume everybody is the best intentioned and well-intentioned, and they're saying the name of Jesus, so they must, they must love Jesus. And I don't want to throw stones at anybody. It's just how the Lord has wired me. But I'm dependent upon the Holy Spirit to, to reveal to me, no, that's wrong. And we need to say that that is wrong through a variety of things that try and creep its way into the church and not allow anybody to communicate and to teach and to cause us to wander into our own flesh and into our own ways. And that's not to be a bigot. That's not to be hateful. That's to be madly in love with who Jesus is. And this is what this, this congregation, again, it's not, it's not everybody there's some that are holding on to this doctrine. And Jesus' exhortation is not to know these deep things of Satan, these deep teachings, these aberrant teachings. Not to allow your flesh to give yourself justification to do whatever you want to do because it feels good. Or to do whatever you wanted to do because your parents were jerks. Or to do whatever you wanted to do because you really like that person and you want that person to like you back. This is why we said, Jesus, who are you? 
Are you my teacher? He says, you're my slave. You're my servant. Jesus, are you my master? And sit, sit in the imagery of that. What does a master get to do with his slave? Whatever he chooses. Is that a fearful thing? If you were the, if you were the slave of man, absolutely. But to be the servant of God, he'll never hurt you. He's not out to destroy you. He has a plan and a purpose and a future and a hope. He has his image to imprint upon your mind and your soul and your spirit for all eternity. That's a good position to be in. But we'll say, Jesus, you're my master, and Jesus, I believe in you, with this side of the mouth, and out of that side of the mouth, do something totally different. Again, we all sit in this. We all know what it's like to be rebellious and to mess up, so we continue to come back to him in trust. But there's the, always the promise. And again, it's, it's, you have to sit in the image of who Jesus is. You have to sit in the words that he is communicating to others and to you to see what you can glean from that. You have to sit in his if-then statements. If you do not repent, what happens? There is an assured judgment that ends in death. I will kill her children. I will kill her children with death. And that imagery is that forever separation, that second death that he describes at the end of this letter. But he who hears, he who has victory in Jesus, what does he promise to this church? I will give to him the morning star. And he begins this identification, I am the son of God. Later on in Revelation, he says, I am the morning star. And think of what the morning star is. The brightest star that comes above the horizon is what? The sun. It's our source of light. When that sun comes up over the horizon, what is it declaring to us? It's a new day. And again, when you sit in the, the culmination of Revelation, it's a new heaven. It's a new earth. It's a new Jerusalem. There's a new name. Same God, but we are new in him for all eternity. And we are told when we are in that relationship, he who overcomes and is invited into that relationship through faith in him, through trust in him, what are you guaranteed to have? An eternal new day because he is the morning star. So, as we end this morning, are you confident that if you take your last breath today and you close your eyes and you die, which all of us will, that when you open up your eyes that you will be staring into the face of your Savior, of your God, the one that loves you, the one that you were looking to to save you from death, the one that you were looking to give to you all of these incredible promises, are you confident that if you die today that you're his?
If you're not, why? Do you know who he is? Do you know whom it is that you believe in? Do you know why you believe in him? Do you know who it is that he's made you to be? Do you know what it is that he's promised you? And we don't come here to play any kind of religious game. And it's not just my heart, it's most of our hearts in here. We want everybody to know to stand on your own two feet in the presence of the God who created you. And the only way that you stand in him is if he gives you the power to do so. And that power is a gift of his grace, and it is only accessed through faith. I believe in you. I trust you. I reject all teachings. I reject all idols. I reject all influences in my life that are seeking to cause me to wander. And I hold on to you. God, help me. So, Father, we come to you in faith, the faith that you have given to us, the faith that causes us to wonder at you, the faith that causes us to come to you in prayer, the faith that communicates to us, Lord, I believe that I am a sinner. I believe, Lord, I know my thoughts and my actions and my rebellion against you, your holiness. I know, Lord, the depths of my idolatry. And Lord, I have heard your voice. I repent. I hear that call to repent, Lord. I hear the teaching that your kingdom is at hand. I believe that you have died for my sins. Believe that you have cleansed me, that you removed all stains and darkness from me. I believe that you have given me a new heart, that new heart that you've promised. I believe that you are shaping me and molding me to be just like you. I'm sorry, Lord. I apologize and I confess that I have allowed many Jezebels to come in and I've allowed those false teachings to, to creep in. And I give you my humble gratitude that you were always there to correct, to reveal those lies, to flood me with your truth and your light. I want you, Lord. I want the morning star. I want the manna, the bread from heaven. I want to drink from your river. I want to eat from the tree of life. I want your new name written all over me. I want to see you. I want to worship you. I want your kingdom to come. I want this entire world, Lord, to be free from all of this evil that we see every day. Keep us free. Keep us humble. Keep us in your truth. 
reveal the works that you've created each one of us to perform. And we look for your gracious gift in the future, whatever that looks like, Lord. As you do your work in us, and as we work for you, we look for all the promised blessings from that relationship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.